like, how can you be a member of the counter? How can you be a member of a counterculture group and actively campaign for the status quo? How can you be like, oh, I'm a witch and still be like only biological women are women? Yeah. Like like, it makes no sense. Like I saw a heavy metal band today on Twitter that was like defending cops. And I was like, how are how are you a heavy metal band that is defending conservative politics? I don't I don't get it. How are you a a counterculture band defending white supremacy? I don't. It doesn't make it make sense. And like the that's what's sad, too, is it's like, do they suddenly view that like what was culture is now counterculture or like what like what's happening like that's my thing is like i think we we tackle their ideals from a place of like reason it's they're clearly operating from a place of uh, being unreasonable like yes it's terrible it's sure you can say all you want about them now but they're gonna come after you eventually we're only 30-ish years removed from the conservative government going after metal music, you know? Yeah. And like all these turf women who are getting cozy with the alt-right, that's only going to last until some feminist issue comes up and then you and then they're going to throw you under the bus. Truly. Okay, so I'll get us started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Read This Way podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Renee Pogue, and my other host is the amazing Jace Wingate. Hello. And Jace, would you like to know what was stuck in my head the entire time I was on my walk before we recorded this podcast? I would love to know what was stuck in your head. In my brain, it was going, ooh, there ain't no other way. In this book, you read this way. In this book, you read this way. Oh, my God. Just that (laughs) on a loop. Do you think we can contact her? (laughs) ask for a cover yes <laughs> gaga will you do this for us two gays please <laughs> uh, pretty please do it for the gays if this is your first time listening hello <laughs> and if this isn't your first time listening hello hello you uh welcome back i'm glad we haven't scared you away yet uh this is a fun podcast where Jace and I read graphic novels and comic books and other forms of illustrated literature, and we go over thematic points that we think are important and also just have fun discussing the various elements within the story. We both believe graphic novels, comic books, and illustrated literature are just as important as regular printed literature. And should be elevated to the same degree. And we just love discussing that kind of thing with each other. And talking to each other in general. So this is your first time. Again, I hope you'll stay. I hope you'll stay and listen to this episode. And then I hope you'll stay and listen to more episodes. Because it's only going to get better. Maybe. We promise. Hopefully. We On this podcast, we don't believe in entropy. This is only going to get better. Yes. Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> i don't know, if you heard that. I don't know I why I found that so funny <laughs> yeah i literally i took a sip of water and i literally did a spit take oh uh, what a joy this might this might be the episode we submit to producers the producers nathan lane and uh matthew 
Those are the only producers I know. Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, thank you. Yeah, I had you. So many names were going through my head and not one of them was Broderick. So I'm glad you saved me. Oh, I had you. It's, yeah, not a problem. I'm very gay. I know musicals and I know adaptations of... All I know is Nathan Lane. I love Nathan Lane. He's an absolute gift. He's an underappreciated gift. I haven't oh seen God. him in anything in a while. I hope he's doing all right. He's probably doing Broadway plays, which I am too poor to afford. I saw him in uh, the Angels in America revival with Andrew Garfield, and he was stunning. So he's out there. He's doing the good work. Oh, good. I always get Angels in America confused with Angels in the Outfield, okay, which is so nothing, nothing like it. So, But I love how my brain I, works. I love it because I think that's the perfect that that's like that's like the time I saw Into the Woods with um my uh one of my old friends his mother-in-law we saw mm-hmm. Into the Woods and she stoned out of her mind and she turns she she turns to her son-in-law and she says I th- I thought this was Into the Wild <laughs> So she's waiting. So she's waiting. Her ass is waiting from the top of Into the Woods. She's like, she's committed. She's like, she's like, it's gonna turn at some point. This is gonna become the book that I remember, and it never does. Where's the van? Why is Red Riding Hood singing? Truly, a memory that like I will think about sometimes and genuinely smile because it's too perfect. I would. 100% be interested in a musical based off Into the Wild. Me too. That would be I, fantastic. I read Into the Wild when I was in sixth grade. And mm. I remember feeling very sad. And I remember feeling very bad for the dog. Yes. Speak, speaking of the story we're talking about today, it's it's the hubris that does him in in the end yes speaking of alaskan hellscapes well we're going to the opposite pole speaking of the antarctic hellscapes oh man i should have put this in my notes but just every facial expression professor lake makes in this story is perfect so appropriate and like i love that he never compromises being too outgoing too too vivacious Mm-hmm. and forgetting how evil he is. This week, we are talking about the adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's story At the Mountains of Madness by Gao Tanabe. If you're not familiar with H.P. Lovecraft, he's like Edgar Allan Poe, but racist. Which, I mean, there's there's more to him to it, but he was one of those writers who wasn't appreciated during his time. And then after his death, people really picked up and ran with his stories. But he wrote a lot of horror in his time, a lot of pulp novels. Uh, he is the creator of uh, Our Dear Lord Cthulhu. He did a lot of cosmic horror. I mean, his writing is good. Not going to denigrate his writing. Didn't he submit at the Mountains of Madness and it w- he submitted it? To a publishing company and they denied it? Or did I make that Oh, up? yes. No, I think he had to submit it like twice because the first time got rejected. Oh, yeah. He submitted um, the manuscript to Weird Tales, but it was rejected. And it was finally published in Astounding Stories. 
the early 1900s were a cool era for horror stories because you had amazing spooky magazines that you could just pick up and they had these wonderful stories like imagine picking up a variety but instead of finding out what Robert Pattinson's Batman diet is you could read a horrific story about an elder god murdering a bunch of people when there was no tv when you do have like picture shows in their early infancy like that was their equivalent of um you know a pastime was reading things Mm -hmm. like this picking up a serial novel in a magazine the things that we consider really like highbrow now actually were probably like (laughs) <laughs> the trash of the early uh, 20th century. I'm sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's like how Sherlock Holmes is this very like elevated character in literature, but Arthur Conan Doyle hated him and literally wrote Sherlock Holmes stories, which were published in whatever the mystery equivalent of Weird Tales was, just so he could make money to work on the books he actually cared about. But... It was, he was just popular with everybody. Everybody loved Sherlock Holmes. It was just like a pulp novel that he wrote to make money so he could work on like books about botany. This is very much, well, not the same, but it's the same kind of, uh, H.P. Lovecraft is, is, I, I don't know if I would strictly consider him highbrow, but he's definitely like, you know, your average person is not going to read him. But back in the day, they probably would. What I particularly love about Lovecraft's writing is that he's like, it was too horrific to describe, but I'm still, but now I'm going to describe it for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was unimaginable to the human mind, but then I'm going to spend three pages describing the scene to you. Mm-hmm. This is very macabre, and I don't know if you've seen this movie. And if you haven't, I'm not necessarily recommending that you watch it, but in the prologue, like, it made me think of Cannibal Holocaust. I haven't, I've never heard of that movie and I haven't seen it. It is not an easy watch, even if you enjoy horror movies. And this doesn't correlate directly with any scene from Cannibal Holocaust, but it just kind of reminded me with the way they come across this horrific scene of just skeletons and everything is dead. Everyone, everyone is dead. There's like the dogs are dead, humans are dead. They're dismembered. It's just like a ridiculously horrific scene. I, I think what this manga does so well, and I think this is particularly another critique of Lovecraft's literature, is that nothing really happens. Um, and I think at the Mountains of Madness is that's kind of in the in the actual novella. What makes it what's meant to make it very suspenseful is that. It's the vastness of the mountains and mm-hmm. the emptiness of it, and that not very much does happen except for these like little moments of like uh, very intense horror, very intense shock. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that these images are really helpful in the storytelling because I don't think my imagination could capture what Lovecraft was actually writing. Mm -hmm. Oh, when it comes to like the creatures later on, I could never have imagined something that looked like that. No, literally, Renee, I want you to know that when I read literature, even horror literature, this is why I probably can read so much of it. I never (laughs) imagined gruesome things like that. Mine are literally like, like literally cartoon characters or Muppets. Like that's probably the level of my imagination. (laughs) 
I mean, that's almost a defense mechanism. You're right. It probably is. It's like a starfish from the bottom of the ocean. Because that's what it looks like. That's what it's it very like. strange. Oh my god! And then the moment when um, this is technically in chronological order what I'm about to talk about, so that's okay. Okay. When they're dragging the elder things back to the camp, and the one is it's like arm is like dragging through the snow, like it's trying mm-hmm. to pull itself back. Creepy. And then that weird it's- like sedimentary rock stuff too that was wild Mm -hmm. also uh, forgive me because i didn't who the which motherfucker is reading the necronomicon when they're (gasps) like studying the world like when their archaeologists and doctors just casually like picked up the necronomicon to read yes they're like oh it's just at our library so we've all read it also (laughs) did you see the did you see the way this dude uh, I'm not see I haven't read the short story this is based off of but so I don't know if this actually happens in the book but the way H.P. Lovecraft just name dro- name drops himself like the way he's like oh this is similar to Elder Gods like the books you see with Cthulhu and it's like okay dude we get You're it like, you write spooky it. things yeah uh, we under we we get it this is a universe piece thank you yeah thank you Thank you, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for reminding us that you've written other things. Here's one thing that initially I was annoyed about, but then I kind of liked. And this is starting at like the very beginning, just where they, he spends, I think, two pages and there's very little dialogue. It just shows the passage of the ships as they get closer and closer to Antarctica. And at first I was just like, okay, whatever. Do we really need to see this? But then I guess when they arrive, I was like, okay, well, I guess it makes sense. It's much, it's a lot more meaningful because Antarctica is so far away. I don't think we think about the fact that it is so far away. It feels more meaningful to have this literal space to show how far they've gone rather than just like, all right, we've met everybody and Professor Lake's here. Let's set off sail. And then the next panel is like, ah, here are the penguins greeting us in Antarctica. I lived for the penguins. And the the pretty picture of all the, all the penguins greeting them. And especially I appreciated this choice more, even more, um, once they're actually there and they're using planes to travel and it'll be like a page or multiple panels just showing their plane flight. And I think that's an important thing to show because the weather and the cold and the terrain is almost its own character. Like you said in the in the original story, this barren landscape is the true horror, like the emptiness and vastness of it. So I feel like it warrants being almost its own character because it's just as important to the story as the actions of the main characters. Absolutely. You're 100% right. I think, I think the, the, uh, I mean, neither, neither uh, unknown thing that these people fear has a voice or speaks, but like both tangible entities, um, the one they happen upon versus the actual elements that they're fighting, you're absolutely right. Because again, they're coming at they're coming past like the Ernest Shackletons who have just kind of like barely discovered 
uh, these landscapes. And mm-hmm. the, you're right. Like, I think that's really what this manga does well is capturing that emptiness versus me being versus me being bored by the emptiness which unfortunately that's how I am. I'm like, okay, I get it. It's a barren fucking landscape. When do they die? (laughs) Uh, But like being able to see it in this form, it's so much more enriching and you're right. There is kind of like to make a very niche uh, example of it. It truly is the father's portrait um, of the glass menagerie. Like the father's portrait is to glass menagerie as the elements are to do this Mm -hmm. at the mountains of madness. Uh, I love a good Tennessee Williams reference. And then the fact that the mountain does capture snow. It's a black mountain. Yes. It's How strange is that? It's Well, here's the thing that's cool about the art too to me is that it's drawn in such a way that it looks almost like it's made of organic material. Mm -hmm. So it's like the entire mountain is a living, breathing organism. And... That phenomenon that they talk about, what's it called? The um, Fata Morgana mirage when they're flying. Oh, yes. It's so – I did not – I thought those only existed at sea. And to see them the multiple times they appear in the book, they're, every single time is more terrifying than the last. So, like, I don't I don't even know what I, – I, th- I think I would – if I saw that in person, I'd get goosebumps because that's mm-hmm. also another – like you again the brilliant point that you raise is it's not only these elder things that are against them but it's also nature itself Mm -hmm. when i was reading it in black and white and i know the last story we read persepolis was also in black and white but i was really struck while i was reading it by the different way they used this chromatic choice because like you said so much in this looks organic and Persepolis was a very strong woodblock style that really helps the reader figure out what is going on in the story. But a lot of images here, I felt, were specifically drawn in a way to make you, the reader, feel as disconcerted and confused as the explorers were especially like what you said in the Feta Morgana scenes like those scenes are terrifying and they could very easily be just a pretty piece of art but when you look at them the way they're drawn is I'm also confused about what this is I also think this could easily look like a city I also don't know how you would get past this you know and I, one, I think it's so, this art style is so interesting. And I also love that we did this right after doing Persepolis because it's interesting to see the different ways the artists in this case used, you know, such a small color palette to show so much in different ways. That's beautiful. Like you really do capture it, Renee. It's, I think that's such a great point. Like I... Mm-hmm have no idea what I'm looking at half the time, but I can't look away. If I had yes. not sped read the hell out of this manga, <laughs> I would have I there I would have sat with those pictures longer. And I think that's mm-hmm. the that's really powerful to me. Cause the moment at the end of the chapter when we see Gidney walking out into the the unknown, I sat and stared at that picture because I'm like, what are you saying not to come out to? 
Yeah. Because I couldn't figure it out. I like stared at that image. And I'm like, what are you afraid of? I mean, obviously, it's, like I I know what you're afraid of, but like, why is this? Why is this brilliant artist not showing me what you're afraid of immediately? Mm-hmm. That's before they know they're in trouble, and that's when you just see Gedney calling out to Dyer and telling him not to come, right? Yes, that's where he's like, don't come out. It's dangerous. Stay where you are. Mm-hmm. And then he disappears after that. How How do you, of course, you know, obviously, they also use grays very heavily. But it's just so interesting how you can use this very small color palette. But I still can see that this person is stuck in a snowstorm. Yes. It is very, like, I feel not completely in my right mind when I look at it. Like, I can't imagine what it would be to actually experience this. It comes out of nowhere. That very, that last scene with Professor Lake where he's like, you all did a great job. Let's rest. And then now it's it's Gedney wandering in the wilderness, telling them not to come and find them. Speaking to to no one or anyone or who knows. I think there's such an element of these explorers, none of none of them, they're so smitten with the idea of adventure, with the idea of discovering something that they don't realize they never allow themselves a moment of like, oh, I could be helpless in this situation. There's so many moments in which they could be helpless and they and it they don't realize it until literally it's too late. And we don't get that. Like we never get to see them realize like I love I love that the mystery, and I think this is another Lovecraft like um signature which is you always come in it's always a it's always a narrator who is unreliable because they haven't seen it everything they're not telling they're telling the story from retrospect but they're still telling the story from only their point of view and like these letters that they receive Mm -hmm. these descriptions like i think it's really i think it's really generous that he gives us the perspective of lake and the expedition crew yes because if this were true to Lovecraft, it would just be them sitting around reading letters. Yeah. And I think Lake's perspective is so important just to understand the story. Because to just read, you miss so many points of Lake's hubris where you realize as you're reading it that there's no way this is going to turn out well. Like one, I do think, I do think, I do want to make this point very clear. I think pretty much every main character has some level of hubris. It feels like the main point of this expedition is to go further than any person has ever gone. They frequently reference where other people have stopped and the fact that they're going further. And there's a lot of focus on we're going somewhere nobody else has ever been. We're seeing things nobody else has ever seen. We're seeing organisms nobody else has ever seen. So all of these guys can talk as much as they want about how this is purely a scientific mission. But to me, it was very clear that the real desire here is to be able to put your name on something new and important. Oh, absolutely. Piss on I your do not ramp. think. Yeah, I do not think Lake was alone at all in this. But I think he takes it to another level in his mind absolutely nothing matters more than finding what he wants to find well and it's like colonialism at its finest right yes and i think it's such a it's a great call it's a great cautionary tale like i think what's so 
interesting about the hubris as well is that it inspires in the reader a fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Whereas none of these characters, I don't think any of them fear the unknown per se, but they are caught like there there are some who are remotely cautious who want to take it a little bit slower yeah dyer is like we have a plan like yes we're going to do this but we have a plan about where we're going to go and then as soon as lake sees the the stone with the strange stripes on it it's all i can think about his only focus is finding more examples of this and finding where it came from and his rush, it doesn't only put his life in danger, but it puts the lives of his crew in danger multiple times. Like he's telling them they have to fly in the midst of dangerous winds. And then he ignores the warnings about the horrific storm headed their way. Like he gets the warning and he's like, tell them we appreciate them telling us, but we're still going to continue our expedition. Yes, he obviously has an insatiable thirst for knowledge, but the way his actions are as you're reading it you're like this is all gonna end in tears oh yeah like over and over again he just shows that he's willing to sacrifice everyone and everything in order to attain his goal one thing i was thinking and of course i don't i'm only speculating but i really think that if every single member of his crew except maybe gedney because i feel like he does care about him a little bit but if every other single member of their crew had died in the landslide of snow that happened when they detonated the cave opening, he wouldn't have cared as long as their bodies didn't block the entrance for him. Oh my God, remember when the two dogs died? And he was like, leave them? I'm like, bitch, you better you better leave yourself. Uh-uh. You. I was like, I hope Cthulhu gets you. Oh my God. Seriously, I'm like, I hope Cthulhu comes out of the sand and you yeah i was done i was like i don't care who does your eyebrows like fuck you like those dogs were good people right they were doing their best i don't care how much you look like benedict cumberbatch respect dogs he does look like cumberbatch you're right he really that was the first thing i thought i was like holy shit this guy predicted benedict cumberbatch when did this release 2015 i go i go 1931 (laughs) <laughs> like, wait, did this release 19? <laughs> um, uh, okay, apparently 2019. So maybe maybe this guy was specifically, he's supposed to look like Benedict Cumberbatch. Gautanabi was like, you know who's the ultimate example of hubris? That fucker who plays Sherlock. You know who I'm really attracted to? Benedict Cumberbatch. That was oh, he's- Gautanabi's. <laughs> He was like, I just love drawing his weird face. Let's make him the villain so I can draw him the most. Over and over again. (laughs) Although I did have a weird thought. Obviously, we are not supposed to see him as a sympathetic character. You know, like I said, he, he shows he does not care about anyone. He just cares about solving this mystery. And like the safety of his crew has no importance to him or has no importance to him. And it was really frustrating to me when he he seemed to get everything he wanted, like when they did explode the cave or explode the wall and expose the cave opening and he got to see the plethora of new undiscovered organisms. But then I realized he could be like a different interpretation. He could be a stand in for the reader to satiate the reader's natural curiosity to know what is under every nook and cranny 
of a land we've never seen and probably will never be able to explore. And that made me almost like him more. Would I do the same thing? Would I be that interested to explore everything? So in that regard, and the way that he's pushing the story forward and showing us what we wouldn't see if he wasn't in this story, is he, maybe stand-in isn't the right word, but he's very much, he's very much there for the reader. He's our eyes into the world. Yeah, like, aren't you curious? I'm also curious. Let me take you on this journey. I think that's so interesting. And the only reason that I will combat that a little bit is because he does die halfway through. (laughs) Spoiler alert! So, (laughs) hey, listeners. um, (laughs) But I think your point is, I think your point's really great. In AP English, I had, um, we were watching, we were talking about horror movies. And we were talking Mm -hmm. about the fact that in order for a horror movie to take place, the person has to go through with the stupid thing, right? Mm Because otherwise it's going to be other... Otherwise, our protagonist doesn't have a reason to go forward if everyone is cautious. So it's almost as though I agree. I think he is like, I think he's our eyes into the world specifically in this adaptation for a short period. I I would say like in the original intent of the piece, the eyes that we have into the universe are what's his name? Whose name I forget. Um, is it Dyer? Yeah, Dyer. Okay. It's obvious that he is supposed to be the leader and the main character. And then he just very much kind of, when he realizes that something might be wrong, he's immediately like, we're going. Caution I don't care how wind. dangerous it is. save them, yeah. And his little fucking, why is he the only one that has a Muppet suit for a coat? I love that Muppet suit. I think that's the funniest thing, Renee. <laughs> Everyone else has a regular jacket and he's wearing, it looks like he skinned a bear. It's ridiculous. The first couple times I saw it, I was like, who is this person and where did they get this magnificent hair? And then I was like, oh, that's fucking dire. <laughs> is this a new character? <laughs> <laughs> well, because like like you said, I, I only know three characters and I know the guy with goggles. His name is not Peabody, but I called him in my head Peabody the entire time. I thought he was going to be so important at the top. When they're both like, we're the professors. These are our grad student assistants. They're coming with mm-hmm. us. And then the man in the glasses, and he just disappeared into the background, except for like commentary. Yeah, he pilots and he created the drill. And they were like, thanks for making a drill. Okay, bye now. They're like, thanks for being a, a vehicle, a literal vehicle for us. We appreciate you risking your fucking life driving through these snowstorms <laughs> looking for one person. He does have a magnificent mustache. Maybe he's featured more in volume two. I mean, we have lost half half of our cast, so. We have, we have very mysteriously and gruesomely. I'm pretty sure this is one of those times where, like, I genuinely cannot tell. But listener spoiler alert, listener slash reader spoiler alert. It genuinely does look like Lake's face was just ripped off from his skull. And it's so I don't I didn't even think it was fulfilling. I I didn't look at that and I'm like, oh, I'm glad that happened to him. I'm like, God, I pity you, girl. Like, I think that's the I think that's the most that 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 description that I think it's Lovecraft's words that they used that they looked carved. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a 
such a very specific and gruesome word to use to describe what happened. Because that gives it intent. Yeah. And it's almost because we force so much respect on a body to have it be like, not only were these people killed, but their bodies were desecrated. Do you think they ate them? I don't know, because it's difficult to say because I don't, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. I don't see any fleshy parts. I just see hands and heads. So it is very possible. I don't know. I can't wait to read the second part because I'm so, I, I'm I'm genuinely curious to find out what happened to them, what's, what's going to happen to this crew. I mean, obviously he survives because we live to hear the tale. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's found information. Like, because I know some, I know Lovecraft's like one of his early stories, the creature that's being spoken about literally is at the window. He's about to die and he like cuts off mid sentence writing. So, oh. Yeah. It's a very famous, um, it's a very utility. It could be like some other expedition finds his journal because we do know that he keeps one. Yeah. There was there were many times in this book where I I very much related to poor Dan is it Danforth I think so Dyer's assistant especially when they like arrive to the barren wasteland and he quotes Edgar Allan Poe I was like okay yes okay cool you are my character stand in <laughs> you're like I, I, see I am you. picking up what you are putting down you are my you sad little assistant. <laughs> and he always he always looks shocked at everything he has three expressions and the one he uses most is shock and i love him for it because that would also be me just the entire time like your face is both shocked from the cold and from what you're seeing yeah everything he sees he's like oh my god the mountains they're black oh penguins oh oh my god the penguins you know those penguins were like, y'all need to leave because this is not going to end well. Like, mm-hmm. They were like, oh, God, not more people. This leopard seals are going to be happy. Yeah, they're going to. I don't know. Do leopards, do leopard seals eat human flesh? Do they? Maybe. I Maybe. Maybe it's. What if it's leopard seals that killed them? Maybe it's a an ancient form of leopard seal that has a starfish for a mouth. Maybe the leopard seals are the elder things. And these are their children. Oh, no. And they're still around. And that's terrifying. You never know. Like, I'm sorry. I'm just like scrolling through the destroyed camp. And it's horrifying. I can't imagine coming across a scene like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I would leave. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just saying I would leave. He's like, all right, guys, let's camp (laughs) here tonight where all the dead bodies are. (laughs) And tomorrow we explore the mountain. Well, because it's like, again, to know that, like you said, to know there's intent behind it. I'd be like, I'm sorry, whatever killed them either doesn't want to be messed with or it's going to come back and it's going to hear us and come back. Especially once they dig up the specimens and they're like, that's really fucking weird. Well, and the fact that there were 14 originally and then they're like, but there were were like eight or six in the ground, Mm -hmm. potentially dead. We don't know, but- the others like disappeared. I'm like, y'all need to go. Right? Because the other ones are probably bigger. Oh, yeah. And they, th- you seem what they can do. 
They don't play. They don't play with boxing gloves on. No, and it turns Dyer from this very cautious person into somebody who's like, "I'm not leaving without an answer. I'm not leaving until I find out what happened to them." And it's like, "You're gonna die too. You're gonna get Danforth killed, and then I'm gonna be mad." Yeah. Once the once the fog clears, we fly into the Black Mountains. It's so terrifying. And the Black Mountain, like what you said before, where they don't catch snow or they don't have any snow on them. That to me, that's too much high strangeness for me. And I would I would be flying past them and be like, whatever is here, I don't want to know. I bet there's better things I could find somewhere Same. that isn't here. I'm looking for like mid-level discovery. I'm not looking for like um, truly maddening, like this is going to carve the flesh off my bone discovery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i'm not i'm not looking to find like some weird cave creature i just want to find maybe like an old plant or old plant homosexuality and penguins that hadn't been mm-hmm. observed yet that sounds fun yeah that sounds eldritch safe. horror with weird little like starfish with tentacles i am not ashamed to say i do not understand these creatures at all on the page where lake sees it for the first time i stared at it for a solid five minutes because my brain could not comprehend what the fuck i was looking at because it's just it's like a tube with a with a starfish on top but it looks like a weird flower as well and a tentacle and then they dissect it and i'm like i still don't like i did i'm with you i'm like i didn't understand what they looked like to begin with, let alone what they look like inside. If I saw that, like, assume assume I am Professor Lake and I have come this far and I see that, I'm leaving. Well, let's pretend we never saw this. <laughs> What's the opposite of discovery? Like, <laughs> I want to, <laughs> I want to, um, God, I want to anti-discover this. <laughs> I, I am a curious person, but my curiosity has bounds. And the point where I find a weird tube creature with tentacles and a starfish on top and it, no, if my brain cannot comprehend it, I don't want anything to do with it. Agreed. Maybe, I'm, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm not a biologist. Like, guys, let's go back. <laughs> let's take some things that aren't this. Let's like it has wings. It has wings and they don't know why it has wings. It has If I see something that has wings and I don't know why it has wings, I'm leaving before I find out why it has wings. Exactly. I don't know. I'm like why why do they let the why do they let him dissect them to the point that they do and then attack? It sounds like they believe that they're all dead. Yes. But as you said like there's that one scene where the one is like dragging its arm in the snow and it's like if you're trying to cut something and the flesh is too tough to cut that is a sign yeah that's like you need to go girl like you're in danger girl this reminds me of the gossip girl (laughs) oh my god gossip girl but lovecraft yes (laughs) god yeah i truly can't wait to see what comes out of volume two me either the only other thing I have in my notes is just like in bold. My last note is your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 
Yes. Which, of course, is Ooh. a quote from Jeff Goldblum's possibly best role, Ian Malcolm from uh, Jurassic Park. And I think it very much applies here because at no point is Professor Lake like, maybe I should stop. <laughs> maybe this is just one of those things that shouldn't be discovered and should be left alone. And yeah, uh, yeah he ends up paying for it. And so do a lot of innocent people. A lot of people lost their lives that day in the Mountains of Madness. So do you think that they were, I mean, I don't think they were dead, but do you think they were maybe in, is it homeostasis? Is that the correct term I'm looking for? Or it's like a form of hibernation? I think homeostasis is right. Okay. Because I. do you think they were just kind of like one of those things where instead of a bear hibernating every year, they're sort of being that hibernate for centuries? That's why they're in a blocked off cave in a frozen tundra. I mean, clearly nobody has been here since since whatever their hypothesis was that it used to be um, a tropical civilization. Yeah. So it's clear that they haven't been disturbed since then. But they also don't seem very affected by the cold because it doesn't it's not like they thawed out and then committed this terrible murder of a bunch of people because it's still freezing there i don't know i'm very interested to learn more also sorry um i don't know if this bothered you or if i'm just weird but given how cold it is there like i think they mentioned specifically that it's between like zero degrees and negative 40 did you get annoyed when you saw like barehanded people handling things? Yes. Oh my God. It is freezing. Why don't you have gloves on? You're going to have frostbite. Mm hmm. Yeah, I was like, you're losing those fingers. Every time I saw a bare hand, I was like, you're losing those fingers. Yeah, bye fingers. <laughs> if it's below 40 degrees, I'm wearing gloves. If it's below 50 degrees, I'm probably oh. wearing gloves. So y'all are. Uh, dumb. Good luck, barehanded people. <laughs> <laughs> Go give your hands to the eldritch horrors and maybe they'll leave us alone. Maybe. Sacrifice those things. Exactly. Exactly. I'm with you. I'm very curious because I'm curious about the scent that they give off, that they give off when exposed to the heat. There was a smell like this, mm -hmm. that pheromone that came off of them. I'm curious about that. I'm curious to find out if the civilization that was there and when it was tropical over centuries, if they came and destroyed that civilization and then went into hibernation or if that was their civilization. And Oh, I did not even think about that. That is a fantastic point. I just have a lot of questions that I have to – I think those are probably my top two. And then I think the rest of the questions I have kind of cascade off of those questions. I cannot wait to read number two of this was – or volume two. This was, as, when I finished it, I was like, "What?" Same. I was like, I was with you. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to read the first half, and then I'll have a little break. I'll finish." And then it was like an hour later. Mm -hmm. was like, oh God! When I sent you um, that picture of Professor Lake, I was like, "Oh God, Jay's gonna be so upset that I'm starting this so late. It's gonna take me forever to get through this." And then, like an hour later, I was like, "Oh, fuck! It's over!" Oh Hail. wow! <laughs> Hail! I was like, oh, I'll probably get like halfway through. And then next thing I know, Gedney's missing, probably dead. Professor probably. Lake has no face. And uh, 
we're flying into the Black Mountains tomorrow. Yeah. Like, cute day trip into the Black Mountains. <laughs> Pack your picnic basket, Danforth. We're going to go meet the Elder Gods. Get ready, Danforth. We're meeting the Elder Gods. <laughs> but I, I loved it. I would highly recommend it. If you're used to, lo- if you've read Lovecraft before, if you haven't read Lovecraft, if you just like horror, if you, if you like, um, I guess it's not really slow burn horror, but uh, if you're like me, if you love a good horror without, you know, gruesome, gross, hostile-esque body horror, something that will make you terrified without feeling the need to grotesquely shock you. There are parts of this that are genuinely, like, shocking, but it's yeah. in a good way. Like, the first time you see the creature, like, when we were talking about before, the first time you see that, it's just like, the fuck is that? Where it's did it come thing. from? And why is it? And not, no part of it makes sense. So. Well, Listeners, thank you for coming on this journey with us through the first part of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness by Gao Tanabe. Really great read. We definitely recommend it. And next week, we'll be covering the second volume, which hopefully all of our questions will be answered. And you'll have to tune in to see if they are. Otherwise, we're just going to have to live with those demons for the rest of our lives. And you'll have to live with those demons (laughs) as well. So my name is Jace Wingate. This is Renee Pogue. And this is Read This Way. And this is Read This Way. Thank you, guys. See you next time.